please turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. And as you're turning there, I want to warm you up uh, for the passage this morning with a congregational activity. Uh, you see, the, congregation, the passage we come to today that Matthew is going to show us, it shows some people having some very extreme reactions to who Jesus is. And I want to warm you up for that by gauging where our church family stands on a number of hot-button issues. Uh, you know this just intuitively. There are some issues that people are either all in or all against. Uh, and I want to kind of take a survey by show, we're going to do a show of hands to see where our church family stands on some controversial issues. And then, Lord willing, after the worship service, we won't have a church split. So, uh, let, me, let me ease you into this survey by asking maybe, maybe a lighter question. Uh, the first one is this, country music. How many of you like, by show of hands, how many of you like country music? Okay. Now, how many of you dislike country music? Yeah, see, like, but most people, that my experience with country music is that you either really like it or you just don't like it at all. And this happened twice in the last week. I was, at once I was just having a conversation with Brooke, and we were noticing that people are like that with country music. But uh, I also, I got my hair cut on Wednesday, and I was at the barber shop, and two women were cutting hair, and they know each other really well, but like it took until that moment for them to discover that one of them liked country music and the other one didn't, and they got in a whole debate over it right there, cutting guys' hair. I was one of the guys in the chair, and I was wondering how it was going to turn out because it got pretty, pretty uh, uh, heated. Um, but yeah, it just seems like with country music, you're either all in or you just don't, don't really care for it. Uh, let's do something next from the world of sports. Uh, we're in the middle of football season, so I'll choose a football one here. Uh, the Dallas Cowboys. How many of you like the Dallas Cowboys? All right. Yeah. Now, how many of you dislike the Dallas Cowboys? Yeah, see, it's, it's, it's funny to me. First of all, it's surprising the amount of Dallas Cowboy fans there are in Virginia. I mean, it's not like we're close to Texas. Uh, but there's, I've noticed that around here in Virginia, it just seems to me like in the Fredericksburg area, we got a lot of Cowboy fans, more than you'd expect, and that most people around here, you either really like the Cowboys or you really dislike them. Uh, you either love them or you hate them. Now, this next one is close to my heart, um, and here it is, Hawaiian pizza. How many of you like Hawaiian pizza? All right, God bless you. Now, how many of you dislike Hawaiian pizza and you can't understand why anybody would put pineapple on pizza? Yeah, yeah, okay, see? Um, now, now, now this, this, this survey question has a third question attached to it. How many of you are just ambivalent? You're like, well, if Hawaiian pizza's there, I'll eat it, but if it's not there, I won't, I won't miss it. Yeah, see, like, not that many people, because you, you, you either already voted. Like, you, you either really like it, or you don't like it at all. Um, uh, nobody seems to be neutral. There's no neutral ground when it comes to Hawaiian pizza, it seems. And uh, what's funny to me is, I, I, this week, I had already chosen to use Hawaiian pizza in the sermon as an opening illustration, and my dad sent me a text on Friday. I hadn't talked with my dad about this at all. My dad sent me a text on Friday with a meme, uh, and it's, it was this picture, a Hawaiian pizza with toy soldiers on it where the toy Italian soldiers are taking the pineapple off of the pizza. 
And this was the quote on the meme. I, I wasn't able to get uh, the meme in high resolution, so I just did the picture. But the quote on the meme says, uh, these unsung Italian heroes are carefully removing the pineapples to save the innocent pizza. So, so there you have it. Yeah, one of the difficult moments early on uh, for Brooke and I in our relationship was when I discovered she didn't like Hawaiian pizza. Uh, it was time to order pizza. I wanted to order Hawaiian pizza. She didn't think that was a good idea. And so I, I came up with what I thought was a wonderful compromise. Uh, this, this was back in the day when they had started doing the half and half pizzas. So we just do half Hawaiian pizza and the other half like sausage and pepperoni. And she informed me that the pineapple would infect the rest of the pizza. You know, what if the juice went on to the other side? That would be, so yeah, so... Um, this is just an aside from the sermon, but tonight we're having the, the youth Christmas party, and we're going to be serving pizza, and there will be Hawaiian pizza there. You know why? Because I'm buying it. That's why. <laughs> so, I look forward to the youth Christmas party all year, all year round. So, all right. So, that was just for a little bit of fun, but it was actually to make a point. I, I wanted to remind all of us that there are certain things that people don't tend to be neutral about. There are certain things where people are, are either all in or all against. Uh, there are certain things that people don't tend to have casual responses to. When the eternal Son of God added humanity to His divine nature and came and dwelled among us, people had some extreme responses. Um, uh, they had some strong reactions just to his presence. And I want to show that to you from our text this morning. Uh, follow along with me while I read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This is God's Word. Let's pray. O Holy Spirit, I'm deeply thankful that as I studied these verses this week, you promised to be my helper, and as I now teach them, you promise you won't let these words that you inspired Matthew to write to return empty without accomplishing your purpose. And so I feel emboldened to pray that you would do wonderful things now, and I'm especially jealous that you would take hold of the hearts of your people 
and persuade them to bow the knee to King Jesus, to give him their loyalty and allegiance, and to look forward to his soon return. Please come do your transforming work now through your word in all of our hearts, I pray. In the saving name of Jesus, amen. So one of the troubling things that I've observed, just as a a Christian living many years in the Christian community, is that uh, in some circles, uh, when people have grown up in Christians' homes, or or maybe they didn't grow up with Christian parents, but but they were sent to Christian schools, attended Christian schools, uh, there can be this cultivation of a casual response to Jesus, a response where, on the one hand, we're not openly hostile, but on the other hand, we're not all in. There can be this response that even tries to deal with Jesus and His teachings in an a la carte fashion, where we agree with most of what He taught, but we're going to take a pass on some of the things that He said that, that we don't like and don't agree with. And our passage this morning is devoid of any kind of that casual response to Jesus. And what makes it fascinating to me at this point is that Jesus hasn't even done anything. He's just a baby. He's not even an active player in the story. He hasn't said anything to provoke the Pharisees. He hasn't performed any miracles. He's just there, and just by His presence, He's provoking strong reactions out of people. And and here's how I want to march us through the passage today. I want to do an outline that's a little bit different. I want to show you an extremely hostile reaction to Jesus, and then a friendly reaction to Jesus. But after seeing each of them, what I want to do is ask two questions. And the first is, what does this response tell us about who Jesus is? And then secondly, what does this response tell us about who we are in relationship to Jesus? So that's how we're going to outline the passage. Uh, Look again at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. In Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, right after Jesus is born, the very first people Matthew tells us about who come to worship Jesus are these Gentile Magi from the east. Uh, They go to the capital city of Jerusalem, and the Greek verb that we translate in verse 1 is saying. uh, The idea there is uh, it's constructed to show continual action. So they arrive in Jerusalem, and they start asking as many people as they can find, where is Israel's Messiah who's been born? And I believe that in these opening verses, you have implied the idea that some time passes. You have to have enough time for the Magi to go around asking multiple people. You have to have enough time for the word to filter throughout all of Jerusalem. You have to have enough time for the word to get back to Herod. And by the way, we don't know if Herod was in Jerusalem. I kind of picture him in Jerusalem, but he could have been at the Herodium. He could have been at one of his other palaces. Uh, You have to have time for Herod to then inquire of the chief priests and scribes, get an answer from them, and then arrange to give the Magi a secret audience with him so that he can meet them before the Magi are sent on their way. So I think there was at least some time where the the Magi were hanging around Jerusalem asking people and then getting their audience with Herod. And what I would like to know from the Magi is what was that like? I wonder if it would have just been sort of 
shocking to them, bewildering to them, that here they are, they're the foreigners, they're the Gentiles from another nation, and they show up in Israel, and nobody seems to know about where the Messiah has been born. Like, they're convinced that Israel's long-awaited Messiah has been born, and nobody in Israel seems to know about it. Nobody seems to know where he is or, or what's going on. And uh, I think it would have been bewildering. But when Herod hears the Magi are in town uh, asking about this child born king of the Jews, he's troubled because uh, a king of the Jews is a rival threat to his throne. And all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And Matthew doesn't tell us why they were troubled. What we're going to see later on in the life of Jesus is that when he comes as Israel's Messiah and offers what Israel's Messiah wants to offer, the people aren't that interested. They're interested in a different kind of Messiah who will kick out the, the Romans. And so, uh, if they understood what was on offer, perhaps they were troubled because they actually had grown comfortable uh, with their life the way it was. I, I think one of the functional reasons they were troubled is because when Herod was troubled, innocent people got hurt. Herod was not known for mild reactions. Uh, you can read about, uh, you can read, and it's actually a pretty long read. You can read all the gory details about uh, Herod's reign and his family life in the Jewish historian Josephus, who, who lived in the first century as well. And even though Josephus wrote his history uh, almost 1,900 years before the coming of Stalin, what you read about Herod is reminiscent of Stalin. Herod was a very paranoid, violent man who commit frequent political murders, and it wasn't just against his perceived political enemies. He murdered at least one of his own wives. He murdered at least two of his own sons and at least one mother-in-law. I say at least because he did try to do it in underhanded ways that didn't point back to him. And uh, <clears throat> as far as history goes, those are the only ones we can prove conclusively, but there were probably other family members. There were other family members who died under suspicious circumstances, and he may have been behind those as well. And so, the people of Jerusalem had good reason to be troubled, and what we're going to see next week is if they were troubled because they were concerned that when Herod was troubled, violence was going to break out, their concerns were legitimate because after this, Herod is going to have all the male children in Bethlehem who are under two years old, executed. And so, Herod hears that this prominent delegation of magi have come from the east to find Israel's Messiah, who they think has been born, and he goes into information gathering mode. Verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. One of the things I want you to notice is that Herod made the connection between king of the Jews and Israel's Messiah, and you can see that explicitly in verse 4. He asked the chief priests and scribes where the Messiah is to be born, and I just want to stop and make this point that everybody involved here the Magi, Herod, the chief priests and scribes, everybody understands that the Magi are not just asking about any old king of the Jews being born, they are asking about Israel's Messiah. And note the way that Herod inquires of the Word of God. He inquires of the Word of God through the chief priests and scribes, but I want to make the point here that he does it with evil motives. He approaches God's Word 
with evil motives, and eventually uh, he is, was judged for that. We have no record of him ever reconciling uh, with God. And he approaches God's Word to try and defeat God's Word in the sense of what God's Word prophesies about Messiah and what he will accomplish. And the chief priests and scribes, for their part, they know where Messiah's going to be born. And so they quote to Herod, Micah 5.2, but they only quote the first half. They quote the first half of Micah 5.2 about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. The portion of verse 2 that they leave out says this, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And I just want to point that out. They had a particular reason why they quoted this passage the way they did to Herod. Uh, It's understandable. But I just want to point out, if we go back to Micah 5.2, we find not only that Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, but we find this. On the one hand, Messiah will be a son born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14, but he will also be God come in human flesh, whose goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now, what the chief priests and scribes do, they don't quote that portion, but they take a portion from uh, a verse later on in the passage, uh, Micah 5 verse 4, that emphasizes that Messiah will shepherd the Lord's people. And so, taken together with him being a ruler in Israel, you actually have from the chief priests and scribes a really good description of the kind of leader Messiah will be. Ruler, on the one hand, uh, it communicates a strong, firm kind of leadership. Shepherding uh, uh, leadership, on the other hand, uh, it, it, it basically communicates a uh, providing, a protecting, and a nurturing kind of care, a tender care. And Messiah's rule will involve both. And after getting the answer he's looking for, Herod then does this. Verse 7, Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Ah, what a guy, right? I mean, what a guy. Like, he's king, but he wants to go and worship the baby too? You guys know this. You don't have to read further in the passage to see through what Herod's doing. He's just using the Magi to do his dirty work for him so that he can try and take out this baby. And uh, I want to stop here and just sum up what we've seen so far from Herod. Herod's response to the birth of Jesus is a hostile, murderous response. Uh, And I want to stop and ask those two questions that I told you we were going to ask at the start of the sermon. First of all, what does this response from Herod tell us about Jesus? Well, it confirms, even if it's from an enemy, that Jesus is a king. And this has actually been Matthew's argument from the beginning of his gospel. Back in chapter 1, Matthew began arguing that Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah who was prophesied to be a king who's a son of King David. And he argued this first in chapter 1 based on the royal genealogy of Jesus. And then uh, in the second half of chapter 1, he argued it based on the miraculous conception of Jesus, and that miraculous conception is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And now, the kingship of Jesus is being attested to by Herod, who views him as a rival king and a threat, and is also being attested to by Gentile kingmakers from the east 
who come to bring him royal gifts. And what that points to is this, Jesus is king. Herod was rightfully threatened because Jesus is a king. And even though his response is an evil response, what I want you to see is that Herod wasn't incorrect about Jesus being a threat to his power. And here's what that tells us about ourselves in relationship to Jesus. Our desire for independence and autonomous power and control over our lives will make us hostile to the rule of Jesus. Your desire to live life your own way, to be the master of your own fate and the captain of your own soul, will make you hostile to King Jesus. And that's true not just of people who hear the gospel of Jesus and decide that they're going to take a pass on it, they're going to reject it, they don't, they don't want to follow Him. That's also true of those of us who do follow Jesus and do claim to know Him. It can, it can be true of us when we fight the rule of Jesus in a particular area in our lives. Now, let me illustrate this, because this can be hard to see in our lives, but, but we need to see it and reckon with it. And the reason it's hard to see, first of all, we know this from Scripture, that sin is blinding. Sin, has a, uh, sin is deceitful. It has a deceiving effect on those who are afflicted with it and, and committing it. And uh, due to its deceiving effect, we don't always see this in our lives, but, but I, think, I think we need to try and reckon with it. So let me give you a few examples. Uh, the first way of fighting with Jesus' rule uh, is by... Um, being against things he taught, and yet telling ourselves it's okay because we're being polite about it and we're being respectful about it. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, Jesus, it's clear in his public teaching that he affirmed everything that Moses and the prophets wrote. So, he affirms the creation account. He affirms that Jonah was in the belly uh, of a sea creature for three days and three nights. Uh, He affirms all the miraculous things in the Old Testament and what was taught in the Old Testament. And this spirit of fighting Jesus on the things he taught, it goes something like this. Uh, Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. Um, I believe that uh, you rose from the grave, and I'm with you. I am, I'm with you till the seventh inning. But if you ask me to believe in creation, or if you ask me to believe there's a place called hell, which I just think is barbaric, or if you ask me to personally uh, practice abstinence from sex outside of marriage, and then publicly I also have to promote it, I really hope this won't hurt our friendship, but I'm just going to have to take a pass. And we think that because we're polite about it, it'll be okay, but it's not okay because he's a king. Uh, Augustine dealt with this, and it's St. Augustine, he, he dealt with this as a pastor in his own congregation. He dealt with people dealing openly, like saying these kinds of things about Jesus, and this was his response. If you believe what you like in the Gospels, and you reject what you don't like, it's not the Gospel you believe in, but yourself. The first commandment is not actually a commandment, it's to acknowledge the fact that Jesus has the right as king to give commands and that we need to embrace and love and celebrate what he commanded. And even those of us who like to pride ourselves on agreeing with the commands of Jesus and affirming all the right doctrines, even we can still struggle with individual areas where we jealously want to maintain control of our own lives regardless of what Jesus says. Is Jesus king over how you spend your time? Or are you saying, all right, Jesus, you get an hour and a half on Sunday morning, and the rest is mine. 
Or are you doing this with your finances? Are you saying, look, Jesus gets control of a lot? Like, I've already made a lot of sacrifices to follow Jesus, but I worked hard for that money. It's mine. Like, I worked hard for that money with all the gifts and strength that God supplied, but, but that money is mine. Uh, or uh, is Jesus king over how you spend uh, your time and money? Uh, are you threatened by the idea of obeying him when it comes to your relationships and friendships, including associating, Romans chapter 12, verse 16, with the lowly? Uh, have you bowed the knee to Jesus as king over your sexuality? Are there areas where instead of trusting his providential wisdom and rule in your life, instead of returning thanks, you're still just bitterly arguing with him over, some, uh, over this thing in your life? It's one of your children, your spouse, your career, where you live. You didn't expect to end up in Fredericksburg. Like, what is it? What, what, what's going on there? Are you saying with your actions, look, I love Jesus, and I want him to be king over a lot, uh, but this area is mine. It still belongs to me. Uh, there, there was an old song I remember singing in youth group when I was in high school, right? And, and, and it seems to me, and, and it's, I understand the song. I sing the song not because I think I've mastered it. I sing the song more as it's like a goal I'm aiming at. But we need to admit that sometimes in the Christian life, with our actions, the song we're singing is, I surrender most. <laughs> I surrender some. Like that's, that's what we're living. When, and when we try to keep control over these areas instead of following Jesus, what we're doing is we're becoming hostile to his rule, at least in that area, and we're not that different from Herod. I mean, Herod turned the volume up to destructive levels but we're still playing the same music. Herod's sordid role in this whole affair, I think, should drive us uh, to repentance for any areas where we're still trying to retain control and where we feel threatened by what Jesus uh, teaches. And I would just say to you as your pastor, if you really struggle with this, I do want to acknowledge that it costs something. It is going to cost you something to obey uh, Jesus in all areas. But what I want to remind you of is that cost, when you're doing the accounting, the cost is not a loss, it's an investment, right? Because there's no sacrifice we can make for Jesus that He doesn't promise to reward us for in the end. He's the one who says, store up treasure on earth where moth and… Uh, uh, store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust uh, can't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. And that's what we're doing when we follow the authority and the rule of King Jesus in all areas. We need to admit that sometimes in the church and sometimes in our personal lives, uh, we're actually hostile to the rule of King Jesus in a particular area. And uh, I think it's good for us to stop and just ask the Holy Spirit to show us uh, where we struggle with that and to face up and deal with it. Uh, that's the best answer in the long run. But thankfully, hostility to the rule of Jesus. That's not the only response in this passage. Uh, yes, you see uh, hostility on the part of Herod, but you also see the humble worship of the Magi. So, let's talk about them for a moment. Few characters in the biblical story are as shrouded in as much uh, myth and tradition as the Magi, and I don't mean to rain on your crazy Christmas parade 
But I do have to just say a few things to make sure we're, we're, we're thinking about what Scripture says when it comes to the Magi. So first of all, we don't know their number. Like three was convenient because there's three gifts. But it, the Greek is, there was plural. So there was at least two Magi. There could have been three. But there could have been 12. I mean, we just, we don't, we don't know. We don't know how many there were, uh, except that there were multiple Magi. Uh, we don't know their names. Th- those three names, those were added later on in church history. We don't know their names. Now, this is the one that really hurts, and I'm, I'm really not trying to, like, mess up your, your manger scene here, but um, we don't know what their mode of transportation was. They, like, it's possible they could have come on Persian or Arabian horses and, and not camels. Um, uh, we don't know what city or country they came from. We do know they came from the east, and they were kingmakers over Persia first, and then also over the Parthian Empire, so probably somewhere in that region, but we don't know the exact uh, city or country. They also uh, weren't kings as we think of kings. They were kingmakers, I'll describe that in a minute, but they weren't kings as, as we think of kings. The Magi first appear in secular historical accounts and in archaeology uh, in the 7th century B.C., and they were a priestly class among the Medes. No king was ever coronated over the Persians, or later the Parthians, who wasn't trained and approved of by the Magi. They were official kingmakers from the east. Now, we hear about them, and when we hear about them in, the, in Matthew's story, we tend to have positive associations with them because of the Christmas story. And they, here they are, they're, they're like the first Gentiles who come to worship Jesus. Uh, but Jews in the first century didn't have those positive connotations. Uh, the Magi are first mentioned in the Bible in the book of Daniel, and they're Daniel's enemies. Um, and it's true, they were well-educated. They were skilled in astronomy and science and agriculture and math and history, but they also dabbled in the occult. They were known for, uh, they had a reputation at least for being good at sorcery and interpreting dreams. It's actually uh, from their name that we derive our own English words, magic and magician. And so for the Jews, the magi who came from the east are Gentile sorcerers. They're Gentile idolaters. There was a negative connotation. And yet, this particular group of magi, uh, they were educated, they were learned. Through the Jewish exile in Babylon, they had access to the Hebrew Scriptures. It's apparent that at least some of them understood the Messianic prophecies in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 9, for instance. Uh, We're not told how God revealed to these magi that the king of the Jews had been born, but they clearly believed that Israel's Messiah had been born, and they believed that He was deserving of their worship. And so, uh, even though there were negative associations for the Jewish people at the time, uh, you and I, from this vantage point in history, we can see this for what it is. The magi in this narrative have become believers in Israel's Messiah and they've come on a long trek to worship Him. Now, with regards to the star that guided them, I don't want you to get too distracted trying to figure that one out. I just, I just want you to note, Matthew does not go out of his way to explain this star. And we don't want to get distracted from the main point of the text, trying to figure out if it was uh, an actual astrological body or if it was something like the pillar Uh, of cloud by day and fire by night, but it appeared in the form of a star. Uh, I don't want you to get too too, um, 
distracted by that. Obviously, it's a miracle from God. And so, after meeting Herod, the Magi go their way, and that star which they had seen originally in the east and had told them to come uh, this direction, apparently they saw it again. It went on before them until it stood over the place where the child was. And I love what Matthew says about this star. When they saw it again, and it was leading them to Bethlehem, they, uh, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I think literally, if you just bring it straight across into English from the Greek word order, they rejoiced with a great joy exceedingly. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, uh, and the Greek word for, the, uh, for him now is a young child, not an infant. So we, we know if you put together the history, uh, he had to be, this is after he was dedicated in the temple. So he has to be more than 40 days old, and yet at the same time, when we learn that Herod kills all the male children in Bethlehem two years and younger, younger, so we think he's probably somewhere between 40 days old and two years old, and the Greek word that's used here is for a very young child, like a toddler, uh, not the word they would use for an infant. So he's a little bit older now. And when the Magi found him, they fell down and worshipped him. And the Greek word that we translate as worshipped here, it's for paying homage that is only uh, appropriate for a deity. Um, let me give you a few examples. The, the Greek word is proskuneo. Uh, when John tried to worship the angel in Revelation, the angel said, do not proskuneo me, proskuneo God. When Satan asked Christ to proskuneo him, he's not just asking Jesus to bow, he's asking Jesus to worship him in that temptation. Uh, Christ refuses and says that worship uh, is for God and God alone. And uh, this makes a point here that just as a reminder in the biblical text, what God wants, what God is after, reconciling people to himself, God wants worshipers. And uh, this is a good reminder for us, I think, that worship involves more than just singing worship songs. In the Bible, whenever you read about either a description of the worship God desires or someone worshiping Him in a sincere way that's pleasing to the Lord, whenever you read about that, notice in the passage the verbs that are used to describe that worship. If you go and you study the verbs that appear in the biblical text around the idea of people worshiping God, what you find is that what people worship, they love, they sacrifice for, they focus on, they submit to, they seek after, they hope in, they serve, they give to, they speak about. What people worship, they will tend to look for peace, meaning, and happiness in. And what they worship, they'll also tend to spend great amounts of thought and time and money and energy on. Uh, and that's what God wants from those who worship Him. He wants people who love Him, who are willing to obey His commands, who seek Him in faith, who trust Him, who look to Him in hope, um, who also are willing to make sacrifices to serve Him in their generation. That's what God is looking for, and that is what true worship is. And these magi offer the young child Jesus the kind of worship God is looking for. Matthew says that after they arrived in the house, verse 11, then opening their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Uh, now, these gifts we should consider not as uh, in addition to their worship, but as part of the way they worshiped him. And we don't know what became of these gifts, but I think they have 
uh, they had a functional value. Remember that Joseph and Mary were poor, and it's likely these gifts were used to finance their flight to Egypt, which we're going to see next week. Uh, the gold in particular would have been very useful. So, I think these are functional gifts they were given. And many Christians believe that each of these gifts has a symbolic significance, but not just symbolic, that they also have a prophetic significance, that each one of them, in a way, is a prophecy of what would come in the life of Christ. And I agree with all of that. I'm not going to go into the symbolism or the prophetic, prophetic value of these gifts. I, I do agree with that. Uh, but I d don't let the symbolism of these gifts distract you from the main thing they're pointing to. And the main thing they're pointing to is this. Taken together, they point to the identity of Jesus as a king. They're royal gifts, and not just the gold. These are the kinds of gifts in the first century you give to a king, which again highlights the fact that when you come to Jesus, you come to a king. Uh, when President and Commander-in-Chief Harry Truman met with General Douglas MacArthur on Wake Island during the first year of the Korean War. We even have video footage of this moment. Uh, if you, you remember what General Douglas MacArthur did, he, he greeted the president with a handshake as a peer instead of saluting him uh, as a superior. And that's not how, what, what Douglas MacArthur did there, that is an illustration of how not to approach Christ. He's the creator and sustainer of all things, the Son of God, Israel's Messiah, and King over all Gentile kings. Before you can be friends with Christ, you have to bow the knee to His kingship, to His lordship, to His rule, to His authority, which takes us back now to the title of this message. I titled the message, Hostile or Friendly. Um, and, and it was just to pose the question, when it comes to King Jesus, are you hostile to His rule and authority, or are you friendly to it? But if you're a mature Christian, you're probably not happy with my title because friendly doesn't quite cut it, right? What Jesus is a king, and being friendly with Jesus isn't quite enough. That doesn't quite cut it. Um, he's a king, and you have to bow the knee to his rule. And this life is where you have to make the decision, not in the life to come. It's in this life that you have to turn from going your own way and take the oath of allegiance to Christ. Uh, now is the time. And these royal gifts from the Magi point us in that direction. Well, having come and offered their gifts and their worship to Jesus, the Magi are then warned in a dream not to return to Herod and to go home to their land by another way. And that leads us into the next chapter of the story that we're going to look at next week. But at this point, I want to stop again and ask those two questions, but this time about the re reaction of the Magi. What does the reaction of the Magi tell us about the identity of Jesus? Well, the response of these Magi emphasize that Jesus is a universal Savior. We saw this two weeks ago when we looked at the genealogy of Jesus and the fact that Jesus is the promised descendant of Abraham through which all the nations and families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, He's not just a blessing to the Jews, even though He's Israel's Messiah, He's not just a blessing to Israel. He is a Savior for all Gentiles who will come and worship Him. And we saw even in the genealogy that He is a Savior of men and women, that He's a Savior of Gentiles and Jews, that He's a Savior of socially respectable sinners 
and sinners whose sins haven't been as socially respectable. And by using the word universal here, I don't mean that in the end everyone will be saved regardless of what they do with Jesus. That's not the point. But the point is that everybody who comes to Jesus to worship Him will be saved, will be welcomed by Jesus because Jesus is a universal Savior. And if you've joined us this morning and never made the decision to bow the knee to Jesus, I want to invite you to follow Him. Uh, And I'll be up front with you, that does include, in a very practical way, giving up control of your life in the sense that you're making the decision to start arranging your life, following His commands, following what Jesus teaches. But I also want to encourage you, uh, consider who King Jesus actually is. He's not going to take your life, mess it up, and then put you in a worse position than when you came to Him, right? He's a king who shepherds all people who come to Him. He, he's a king who shepherds all people with, their, with the best long-term interest of their souls at heart. Uh, he died in the place of rebellious subjects who really, they deserve to die themselves. He didn't have to do that, but he's that kind of king. When he was offered by Satan during his temptations, when he was offered a crown over all the kingdoms of the world, he chose a crown of thorns. When it was his turn to be lifted up and exalted, he chose to be lifted up on a cross. Uh, If you entrust yourself to him, you are entrusting yourself to a good shepherd who will care for your soul. And in addition to what I've said here about Herod and the Magi, there is one more group of people. Uh, It it didn't quite fit into my outline, but I can't help but close with it. it. There is one more group of people that I think illustrates an important truth for us, and it's those chief priests and scribes. You know, the chief priests and scribes, clearly, uh, they knew where Messiah was to be born. And then in the story, you have this large contingent of high-class wealthy uh, dignitaries, kingmakers, uh, no less, Gentile kingmakers from the east, they come to see where Israel's Messiah is, who they claim has been born. And yet in the text, we're not given any indication that any of the chief priests or any of the scribes or any of their underlings were sent to Bethlehem to go and investigate. Uh, So they had the prophecies about Messiah, but apparently they didn't really care. Uh, They didn't seem to care, um, and they didn't seem to look forward to His coming with anticipation. And what I would say to you, brothers and sisters, is we have the prophecies about Messiah coming a second time, and it would be ironically sad for us to see the behavior of the chief priests and scribes and condemn them, call them out. Bethlehem is only six miles away from Jerusalem to call them out and yet not be looking forward to the Lord's second coming. Uh, we, we can have, uh, this is just, I want to remind you of this continually here at Grace, we can have all our theological T's crossed and our I's dotted uh, when it comes to end times theology, for instance, and yet not look forward to Christ's return. And if that's the case, we're not very different than these scribes. So, brothers and sisters, let's yield to King Jesus in all areas, uh, in all that He commands, Let's offer Him sincere worship like the Magi, and let's look forward to and pray for His soon return.